So we're starting our reading in Matthew chapter 26 from verse 57. Those who had Jesus, who had arrested Jesus, took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law had the elders and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests of the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus, so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you. We'll continue the reading from Matthew 27, from verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they were bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called the Messiah, for he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he, Barab- then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Continuing on our reading. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus 
into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and then then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him in the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put on his put his own clothes on him. They then led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. After uh, Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his left and sorry, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, "You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in 3 days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God." In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him were, who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, let me add my uh, welcome uh, to that of Collins and everyone else. Uh, it's good to be with you uh, today. Now, who are you? Well, this was the question that I asked you all last week, so you've all had some time to think about it. Maybe after some contemplation, you've returned to church this week full of confidence and reassurance of who you are. Maybe the question was raised last week, but it was left unresolved 
and you've had an existential crisis all week long, doubting and questioning who you are. My apologies if that's been the case. But hopefully today you will receive some reassurance of who you are. Well, who are you was the big question that was put to Jesus in those final hours before his crucifixion. Three times this question was put to Jesus. Firstly, in the midnight trial, the Sanhedrin, they asked Jesus, Who are you? Are you the Christ? And then secondly, in his trial before the Roman governor, Pilate, Pilate asked him, Who are you? Are you the king of the Jews? And thirdly, the crowd at the crucifixion, they mockingly asked Jesus, Who are you? Are you the son of God? And what repeatedly stands out in this account of the final hours of Jesus' life is not so much the answers that Jesus gives to these questions of who are you, but rather how the variety of people respond. So today I want each of you to consider how do you respond to who Jesus is? Because I can stand here and tell you who Jesus is objectively, but what really matters is how you respond to who he is. So let's look at those three instances of the question of who are you in turn. So the first instance of this question, it comes in Matthew chapter 26, verse 63. When the Sanhedrin, they are the Jewish high court. They're the most esteemed religious and political leaders of the Jewish people. And they ask Jesus, who are you? Are you the Christ? Now the setting for this question, the constant context is that of a legal trial but it's a most strange trial because for much of the week leading up to this trial since his entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey a week earlier on Palm Sunday Jesus had regularly been in the most prominent place in all of Jerusalem the temple if you wanted to find him it was easy you knew where to look but instead the chief priests and the scribes and the elders With the help of the betrayer, Judas, they rally an angry mob who are armed with swords and with clubs, and they come and find Jesus to seize him in the middle of the night. And this angry mob, in the middle of the night, they bring Jesus before Caiaphas, the high priest, to put him on trial. A trial in the middle of the night. Now, if you've come to church for a few years, and you've heard this story a few times... Maybe this doesn't sound that odd to you, but it should. Can you imagine something like this happening in our modern context? If when you woke up this morning, you you turned on the news or you're listening to the radio as you're driving in and you heard about a trial that the Supreme Court had done hastily overnight and a criminal had been given a life sentence, our immediate response would be, that doesn't seem right, that sounds dodgy. Something a bit fishy is going on there. And you'd be exactly right. And that's what's happening here to Jesus in his trial. It's in the middle of the night. There are people who have been paid off to be fake witnesses. Not only does it just smell a bit fishy, it stinks. And yet, no credible charge can be laid. And so the final ace up the sleeve of the high priest in trying to get their desired outcome, he demands that Jesus answer this question, 
Are you the Christ? So why was this question the ace up the sleeve? Because the Christ, that comes from the Greek, and it's the same word as Messiah, which just comes from Hebrew. It means the anointed one or the chosen one from God. And the Old Testament, it's full of predictions about what this Christ, this chosen one, was coming to do as the great deliverer of the Jewish people. The title Christ, it indicated that the person is divinely appointed, that they're commissioned by God, accredited by God to be the saviour of humanity. This Christ is the one who the Jews had eagerly been waiting for for centuries. All this is why the question of, are you the Christ, was such a loaded question. And in chapter 26, verse 64, Jesus affirms that he is in fact the Christ. Now it's crystal clear, the Christ, the one who the Jews had been waiting for for centuries, he's finally here. But as I mentioned earlier, it's the variety of responses to Jesus that really stand out in this passage. So how do the high priests and the other members of the Sanhedrin, how do they respond to Jesus' answer of, who are you? Are you the Christ? Well, their response is to see Jesus as an enemy. Their pride and their love of power and authority, it blinds them from seeing who is in front of them and what's right there. They're a bit like me and my brothers playing Marco Polo in our pool growing up. Just like shouting out, Marco! They cried out, are you the Christ? And they've heard Jesus' response, Polo, here I am. But they still can't see what's right in front of them. Rather than seeing Jesus as the Christ, in their blindness they see him as an enemy, a threat to their power and their authority. To them, he is encroaching on their ability to live their lives the way that they want to. So to see Jesus as an enemy was a response of the Sanhedrin to Jesus declaring that he is the Christ. But how do you respond to Jesus declaring that he is the Christ? Do you see him as the one divinely appointed to be the saviour of humanity? Or do you see him as a threat, an enemy? someone who's encroaching on your ability to live your life the way that you want. Well, the second instance of the question of who are you, it occurs in Matthew chapter 27, verse 11. So there, the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, he asked Jesus, who are you? Are you the king of the Jews? Now, this title, the king of the Jews, it's presumably the title which the Jewish leaders had reported to Pilate rather than Christ. Because the title of King of the Jews, it's far more politically loaded in the ears of a Roman governor than the title of Christ is. So once again, Jesus is asked a loaded question. For admitting to be King of the Jews meant he could be charged with leading an uprising, a rebellion against the Roman government. And once again, Jesus gives a short, affirming answer. You have said so. Well, in the eyes of Pilate, Jesus can claim to be king of the Jews all that he likes. But he sure doesn't look like a king. You know, the Roman soldiers, they definitely don't think that Jesus looks like a king. 
He didn't have a crown like kings do. So they made him a crown out of thorns. He wasn't adorned with fine clothes like kings are. So they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Pilate and his Roman soldiers, they don't see a king. All they see is a tradesman from the countryside of Galilee with no weapons, no army, no crown, no fine clothes, and he doesn't even have the support of the leadership of his own people. Some king, huh, they thought. And so Pilate, he's indifferent towards Jesus. In his mind, he has no reason to be jealous of Jesus, no reason to be envious of him, as he knows that the Jewish leaders are. This man before him is no threat, political or otherwise. And what's more, he can't find any credible evidence for any charge of wrongdoing against him. And so in his indifference, Pilate seeks to remain impartial. Rather than make the decision himself, he allows a crowd to make the decision for him. Perhaps, he thought, that they would choose Jesus over Barabbas and he would be let off the hook from making a tough decision. But no luck. The crowd, bloodthirsty to the point of almost rioting, they choose Jesus and there's no escape for Pilate. And even though, and despite believing that Jesus had committed no evil worthy of death, Pilate decides this is not the political hill that he wants to die on. So in a politically prudent move, and to avoid dying on this political hill, Pilate washes his hands, declares his innocence, and he delivers Jesus over to literally go die on a hill. So to see Jesus with indifference was the response of Pilate to Jesus declaring that he is the king of the Jews. But how do you respond to Jesus declaring that he is the king of the Jews? Does it make a difference to you? Or like Pilate, are you indifferent? Because I think the overwhelming majority of people within our, within our society, they respond to Jesus with indifference. The majority of people within our society, they can agree upon the fact that Jesus had some good teaching. You know, that whole idea of doing unto others as you would have them do to you. Yeah, that, that's good stuff. Majority of people, you know, absolutely have no problem with that and can get on board with that kind of idea. But as for Jesus claiming kingship and authority so that it actually makes a difference in their own life, or well, here and now, well, that's a different story. So do you see Jesus as someone who makes a difference in your life here and now? Well, the third instance of the question of who are you, it occurs in Matthew chapter 27, verse 40, when the crowd, they challenge Jesus to prove who he is. Is he the Son of God? And although Christians, we believe Jesus is the Son of God in that he is God the Son, the people here are not challenging Jesus to prove his divinity. For the people of first century Israel, they understood the title Son of God not from a biological son perspective, but rather from uh, the perspective of someone who is sent by God as his representative and as his agent. So therefore, the son of God was someone who had a special relationship with God 
as one who belonged to him, as one who was sent by him as his representative and as his agent of salvation. And we can see how this uh, relationship, how the people understood this relationship to play out between God and the Son of God from chapter 27, verse 43. So here the people say, He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. So one final time, Jesus is confronted with a loaded question. And at this point, it's interesting to note that if you are the Son of God, it's the same way that the devil begins two of the temptations way back at the start of Jesus' ministry at Matthew chapter 4. And so here at his crucifixion is one final temptation for Jesus to prove his unique relationship with God in order to escape extreme physical suffering. But Jesus had already faced and overcome this temptation the night before his crucifixion, in his prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is firmly resolved that the Father's will be done. And so Jesus, he provides no verbal response to the question of who are you? Are you the Son of God? Now why does he do that? Well, because paradoxically, it is this very relationship that he has with God as the Son of God that requires him to fulfill his Father's will on the cross. And just as we've looked at the response of the Sanhedrin and the response of Pilate, now let's consider another response. This time it's the response of one of the Roman centurions charged with keeping watch over Jesus during his crucifixion. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 54, one of the centurions, having witnessed the daytime darkness leading up to his death and the shaking of the earth that occurred after his death, the centurion exclaims in awe, truly, this was the Son of God. The title, the Son of God, which was used to hurl mockery towards Jesus, is now fittingly reversed in a grand declaration of the truth. So we've now stepped through the trial, the verdict, and the execution of Jesus. But why? Why do we bother to remember these events on Good Friday? Well, the answer, it comes back to the answer of that question that I began with. Who are you? Who are you? Because there are many things that can define who we are. Male or female, old or young, rich or poor, tall or short. These are but a few of the vast number of things that we could use to describe who we are. And together, all of these descriptive things, they build a picture of the unique individual that each one of us is. And yet, as individual as we all are, The Bible says we all have one thing in common. So in Psalm 53, verses 2 and 3, there it says, God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone has turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. 
Who you are, who each one of us is, is someone who has turned away from God. Someone who, on their own, is guilty of not treating God as he deserves to be treated. That's what the Bible calls sin. Someone who, on their own, lives outside of a relationship with God. Whether you recognise it or not, whether you like it or not, that's who you are. But the hope that we find on Good Friday is that is not who we are anymore. Who we are can now be defined in terms of who Jesus is. Because Jesus is someone who did not turn away from God, but rather he humbly and obediently followed him, even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus is someone who always treated God as he deserves to be treated, living a perfect life without sin. And Jesus is someone who lived a perfect and internal relationship with God, the Father. That is who Jesus is. And we can now be defined in terms of who Jesus is because a great exchange occurs on the cross. So as the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange, he who had no sin, he takes the place of us who have sin. And what's more, not only does Jesus take our place, he also fully takes on the guilt and the punishment that comes with our place. He who was in a perfect and eternal relationship with the Father, he takes our place of living outside a relationship with the Father. And this is why in the final moments on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because Jesus is sensing a separation from the Father that he had never known before. For as Jesus took on all the guilt and all the punishment of sin, well, the Father had to turn away from his Son. And as that relationship between father and son is temporarily broken, the relationship between God and humanity is restored. We become the righteousness of God, no longer living outside of relationship with God, but able to be reconciled to him. This is the hope that we have in the face of guilt. This is the good news of Good Friday. That who we are, rather than being defined by any number of things, can instead be defined by who Jesus is. And who is Jesus? Well, he is the Christ, the one divinely appointed to be the saviour of humanity. Who is Jesus? He's the king of the Jews, who reigns by taking the place of his subjects. And who is Jesus? Well, he is the son of God who was sent by God as his representative and agent of salvation. And like on that very first Good Friday, what really matters for us here today is how we respond to who Jesus is. So will you respond to who Jesus is like the Sanhedrin did? Seeing Jesus as an enemy, encroaching on the way that you want to live your life.
Will you respond to Jesus like Pilate did, with indifference? Or will you respond to who Jesus is like the centurion did, acknowledging that surely he is the Son of God? My hope is that you see Jesus as someone who makes a real difference each and every day of your life because of the hope that can be found through what he did for you on that very first Good Friday. Well, let's stand and sing together now, thanking Jesus for the great exchange that he made for us.